Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. James, how are you doing today? Great, Aaron. Uh, I'm, I'm always glad when Porter takes a vacation because I always like going on the show. Well, man, we appreciate it, and we know we get a lot of uh, positive feedback whenever Porter's out and you're able to sit in. Uh, we have a special guest on. It's somebody that you know well, Mark Echo, who is a uh, fashion designer. It's probably what he's most known for. But uh, this guy is a uh, stud entrepreneur and uh, a venture capitalist. Uh, how do you know Mark? Well, I basically have met him through, you know, when his book was coming out, we both knew Ryan Holiday and uh, we started talking through that and then uh, just continued the conversation. So I was glad when he said yes to come on to the show. Yeah, I think it's great. Um, I've got some questions for him. I know that you'll have a lot of questions for him. Him and Ryan Holiday, I can imagine, have a lot in common because they're both the type of people that have the ability to reach real high connectors and uh, create these kind of events for themselves where it's more pool marketing versus push marketing and i know you've written about that too so we'll kind of get into that into that in a little while but before we do let's jump into some kind of like financial headlines or some uh topics in the news right now i want to get your take on a few things um this big uh debt ceiling debacle that uh you know Two weeks threatening to shut down the government, people freaking out, even though barely any of the government shut down and uh, they wasted a bunch of uh, taxpayer money while they were, quote unquote, shut down. And by the way, they pulled in a ton of revenue. Uh, What's your take on that, James? Did it matter? Do you even care? Uh, The answer is I don't even care, except for the fact that I wrote a funny article on my own blog about why I didn't care. Because the reality is, every year there's a new threat of, oh no, the federal government's going to shut down and we're all going to uh, die or something. But the reality is, and I said this in my post, nothing is going to happen. And it's funny, so many people argued like, oh, you know, the U.S. is going to lose its advantage in science, or, you know, two million federal government employees are going are to go without pay, or the U.S. is going to default on its debt, which shows me that, A, people had no idea what a federal government shutdown means, and B, uh, here we are. The stock market's at all-time highs, and there's no federal government shutdown. So the whole, I would rather talk about nudes than the news. So the news is always useless. They try to scare you. It's more like they're worried about a federal news shutdown, that there's no more news from the government, because that's the best way to scare people. Otherwise, newspapers will go out of business. 
Yeah, so a uh, couple of questions here. Uh, number one, how well was that received? Well, yeah, why, what? Uh, and by the way, why can't we talk about financial nudes? Why are we always talking about financial news? I'd rather talk about financial nudes all day long, my friend. Um, let me ask you this. How was your uh, blog received by people? Because uh, whenever we burn it down like that, we get a lot of hate mail because we're un-American and because people have these like allegiances to their parties. Uh, How did your audience receive it? Well, I tried to make it. Just funny, because to me, it, it really is just a joke, that a whole notion of a federal government shutdown. And you don't have to be like a card-carrying libertarian or a Democrat or Republican to just – there's no reason to be annoyed or angry. This is just kind of mental masturbation that happens among politicians. But if I want to be happy and enjoy the sunshine and play tennis with my kids and read good books, I don't need to be worried about the federal government shutdown. It's going to happen. The newspapers are going to sell some newspapers and it's going to then not happen. The newspapers will sell no, more newspapers and the stock market will go to all time highs. So the best thing is to I even ignore the hate mail, you know, which I did get as well. The only thing I would do is I, I, I don't I never argue with the hate mail. I kind of just joke around with it because it, anybody who takes something like this seriously, you can't take seriously. Yeah. And um, for those of uh, our audience that don't know, you actually considered running for a congressional seat in your district until you did a little investigating and started talking to people and realized uh, what a big sham it is. Uh, briefly tell our audience about that experience. And um, I guess you know this better than anybody. You can see what these politicians are going to do a mile away from just a little that you dabbled into it, right? Yeah. As soon as I um, put out the feelers and started hiring people to run for Congress, I was instantly sucked into the machine. Like presidential candidates already from 2016 were, were you know, having their their pollsters call and trying to get endorsements and trying to poll in my district and, you know, trying to see what my issues were, if they kind of matched up with the issues of the people in my district. And I and I was instantly felt this strong visceral reaction like, I can't do this because you, you can't it, it, you can't change from inside the machine. You know, if if you're a widget in the car, you're not going to change the car. If you're the driver of the car, then you could change the car. And so uh, the best way for me to be the driver is to actually stay outside the system, outside the machine and do my own driving, drive wherever I want instead of drive where, you know, the car tells me to go. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. Let me uh, go to the next topic. Um so, James, you've written a lot about uh, the disappearance of the middle class. You know, Porter's written The End of America. His th his thesis on The End of America revolves around the U.S. dollar losing its world reserve currency status. Uh, and, of course, that's all due to the Federal Reserve in an inflating way and bad political decisions. Yours is uh, a little bit different. You talk about the macroeconomics, which are the same, but you talk about how uh, working for corporations – is something that you can't rely on anymore. And frankly, a lot of jobs are disappearing because the workforce isn't keeping up with technology and uh, companies will ruthlessly cut. Uh, did you happen to see the brief uh, outage of the EBT cards uh, where Xerox servers kind of went down and literally within hours you had people uh, looting uh, Walmarts where police were had to get called in and uh, people were freaking out. Um, any thoughts on that? 
Yeah, sure. So, so this is related to uh, food stamps and how people, you know, some people rely on the government to help feed their families, and that's all great. It would be great if there was some uh, power up above, you know, whether it's the government or God or whatever you believe in, that's going to feed everybody. But the reality is that's just impossible. Like, there's always going to be. Uh, people, who, if, if there's any central power that tries to feed you, they're going to fail to feed everybody. And so what's going to happen is the, uh, people start looting and just starting to try to, to take what's not theirs in order to get fed. So it, again, it's not a political thing. It's a personal thing. You have to take responsibility for yourself, not because that's so hard, but because you want your freedom. You want your freedom to feed your family. Don't spend on other things or, you know, don't uh, do things that are, make it incapable of you getting a job or a source of income. You're going to need that source of income because there's nobody who's going to look out for you. The government is not going to look out for you. There is so much waste in the government, so much uh uh, you know, so much, so much of our tax dollars are then just funneled into the biggest lobbyists that it's just an extreme joke what happens. You can't rely on any aspect of it to either work or to work in your favor because nobody actually cares about you except yourself. And I don't mean this in a harsh way. You just have to take care of yourself first. That's uh, great advice. That goes back to your choose yourself uh, philosophy. Speaking of waste... Uh, and I know you've done some kind of computer programming in the past. I believe you had a, a really solid story about when you were at HBO and you were trying to convince them that the Internet was the next big craze. And they were kind of like, oh, man, we're just like uh, media people. Like we're, we're, we're not really doing the Internet. So you built an intranet for them, I believe, uh, on some like outing. Uh, yes. and, and then they started to realize, oh, hey, well, wait a second. Uh, is that story accurate? Tell me how that went, because it's, it's a good story. Yeah, so so I got hired there, and part of what I was doing was um, helping the cable side deliver interactive HBO to TV sets. And I said, look, you know, you can do all of this if you just use the Internet. And I remember my boss at the time telling me, James, James, James. I think the cable guys know a little bit more about this than you do. The Internet is just for academics, so why don't you just... Do what we tell you to do. You know, meanwhile, fortunately, you know, HBO didn't own HBO.com. So fortunately, they took my advice. They spent $250,000 to buy HBO.com. And then, like you said, I, I kind of on this over the weekend built an intranet to show them how it's used. And then we finally built an actual website. This is in the 90s. But from there, I started a company building websites for many entertainment companies, uh, including some companies that uh, intersected with uh, what Mark Echo's activities were. Like I did a lot of the websites for Loud Records, for uh, Puffy's uh, Bad Boy Records. So I was doing a lot of kind of the, the rap uh, websites at that time, websites for all entertainment companies. A lot of it is related to, again, you know, software is is hard. Uh, you know, there's a lot of so the, the Internet is easy, but, in, you know, that software is not complicated. And that's why the Internet be popular is that the, no software on the Internet is rocket science. But almost every other piece of software out there is a lot harder. Yeah. So the uh, Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare, was uh built on these exchanges, which is essentially software. So you enter your information, it takes in all of your um, kind of demographic information, 
And uh, it gives you a quote for, you know, this forced health care that people have to have if you don't have it, if you pay fees, uh, taxes. And um, the company that won the contract to build the architecture, it was like a $97 million taxpayer, you know, uh, award, which I think would be plenty of money. Well, of course, being the government, they, uh, you know, probably change their specs or whatever. Or the company lowballed them and fleeced them. It ended up costing taxpayers over $630 million so far. And uh, it doesn't work at all. Now the experts have come in and looked at it and said, you know what? I don't even know if we can come back in and recode it. It might be at the bottom level of a database architecture where it just needs to be completely scrapped and rebuilt. Uh, James, is this something that is just typical of the government or is it this complicated to program something like this? It's 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 this complicated, and and the, the you look at like Ray, Ronald Reagan Star Wars. Okay, that's like a billion lines of code were suggested. It's it's in, it's impossible to debug that much code. So what they tried to do with Obamacare was outsource it to a company that was going to build it from scratch. I could tell you, and you could ask any internet programmer for a million dollars. Well, I'll even be I'll even be generous. For five million dollars, you could have programmed all, this entire operation without a glitch using basic internet programming skills. But instead, they decide, someone made an enormous amount of money on using my taxpayer dollars, your taxpayer dollars. You know, we all pay taxes, and it's just a shame that we have no say at all on how our taxes are used and how they can be used efficiently. Like, who even hired this company to build Obamacare? Like, it's obviously it's going to be a mess. There's no way you could uh, you could start from scratch. It's like building the internet from scratch and expecting it to to work on the first go. Yeah, it's uh, it's a bit ridiculous. All right, well, uh, that's enough of this for now. Let's get to Mark Echo and let's uh, get into the meat of the the show today. Our guest today is Mark Echo. Mark is an American fashion designer, entrepreneur, investor, artist, and philanthropist. He has a best-selling book on label selling you without selling out. Mark, welcome to Stansbury Radio. Oh, cheers, man. Good to be here. James, take it away. Well, Mark, I, first off, I have to say your book was excellent. The story is excellent. Your rise from, um, you know, where you started to where you ended up and all the kind of persistence and failure and kind of mojo to get you there uh, was really impressive. I really enjoyed the book, and I, I highly recommend it to anybody. Thank you, James. It means a lot coming from you, uh, and I appreciate that very much. You know, I wanted to ask you, like, so many people find that their lives are dictated uh, to them by the people who came before them. So, for instance, by their parents. And I feel like you were – that was in danger. You were in danger of that happening to you. So your, your life your life story started off as, a, as essentially being dictated by your parents and where you were coming from. You were, you were supposed to be a nice Jewish pharmacist, and then you went off and started, like, the biggest – kind of, you know, hip-hop fashion label. So how did you, what kind of advice would you give to someone who is constantly pressured by family and peers to do one route, but that's not the route that's going to make them happy? Well, you know, I mean, it, actually, I, it wasn't really being dictated, I think, by my parents. I mean, quite the contrary. I mean, in the my parents were pretty supportive. I think it often, that construct of who dictates um, is often, uh, you know, in your head. It's more of a social stigma 
Um, you know, I had the uh, fortune of being the only male in the family amongst all the cousins. And, you know, I think maybe that uh, led to, um, you know, uh, you know, with only having sisters and all female cousins. I think maybe I felt obligated culturally um, to follow in my dad's footsteps, you know, but it wasn't like he really pressured that. And I think sure, but there, but there was some kind of almost then, like you say, cultural pressure or so, something that was outside of you that was kind well, of writing yeah, down the I, rules I at first for you. Yeah, I think it's often inside of you. I think it's often in your head. I think it's mm-hmm. it's a, it's this kind of wanting to, you know, please, you, you go through a K through 12 sentence, you know, everybody goes through the same 12-year yeah. sentence in their life, and you're taught to uh, create evidence in, uh, of your knowledge or get affirmation by, you know, from other people, right? Uh, uh, if you're your teachers, your advisors, the adult, that's like, that's the, the, the construct of pedagogy. So when you're 18 years old, um, doing something really just for yourself in a self-motivated, self-directed way is, is somewhat foreign. I mean, other than just being a consumer and saying, I want those sneakers, I want that iPhone, really those kind of material decisions about your course are really very heavily handed and, and guided uh, for us. So I think that that pressure is often, you know, created as a cultural thing, um, and it's often we're our own worst enemies by allowing those kind of paradigms and uh, to exist. So, you know, I had um, the good fortune of, you know, effectively I wasn't maybe able to, to communicate it in this way, but I started my business really as soon as I got my airbrush and air, air compressor at, you know, 14, 15 years old. So. I, I think I had gotten kind of a head start and, you know, went to a vocational school, if you will, in my garage, you know. So I had the kind of affirmation that with my hands I could do a trade that in the school, in, in my school system, I couldn't necessarily get the same kind of credit for, you know. So I wasn't necessarily getting an A for it in school, but I was making more money than my drug dealer friends by painting t-shirts. So the affirmation was coming. I couldn't articulate it in that, 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 in, in that way that I was getting education, but I look back on it and it really was my vocational training. Um, you know, it was a self-directed uh, educational path. It was more adult learning centered. It was andragogy. It wasn't pedagogy. And, um, you know, I now at 41, I look back on that and I'm like, wow, that was kind of really special. Um, and well, it's, it's, it's great also that you had this affirmation kids. that you were creating what you viewed as art, but people were actually buying it. So, so I, I remember in your book, at first you were a little nervous about wearing your own clothes in school, but then everybody was like, hey, how can I get some of that? Right. Yeah. And, I, and you know, I, I struggled you know, I was very kind of emotional uh, about my art and my creativity and kind of uncomfortable in my skin uh, uh, around that uh, expression, really until I was almost damn near 30, you know, and now now as a, you know, as a, a grown man, I, I look back at that and I say, wow, um, you, you know, how many of my peers and friends that remain scared and hid behind their art and kind of stuck in the safety of their own kind of emotional plastic bubble. Uh, What what made you different from those friends? Um, 
I, I think maybe, I think, you know, uh, uh, I don't know. I, I mean, uh, I think maybe it was, um, you know, being a little naive. I don't know. Maybe I was um, maybe a little bit um, more naive or maybe I was um, because I was cast a little bit differently because I was, you know, the white chubby Jewish kid. It's like maybe I, I felt uh, more of a need to, um, you know, maybe gush or push it in ways that they they didn't need to. I I don't I don't know. I, I don't really know. I think maybe I was more selfish. Maybe my twin sister gave me more confidence. You know, maybe I had. Uh, maybe it was a little bit of, of, um, my environment and my parents being, you know, you know, hustling real estate and, and, uh, you know, being kind of entrepreneurial, maybe it gave me the, the confidence to just parrot them. I don't, I don't really entirely know what made me different. Um, uh, but, uh, it, it, in an exact, uh, manner, but, um, obviously there was, there was a distinction. You know, it's interesting. You just said something uh, that I think a lot of uh, listeners and people in general have a problem with. You said, um, you know, you had this issue up till 30 of being kind of self-conscious in your own skin. But now, quote unquote, you're a grown man at 41. So many people in their 20s think they already need to know their life purpose, their life vision, how it's going to work out from the ages of 25 to 65. But that just doesn't it just doesn't work out that way. And, you know, even from 30 to 40, there's so many changes that could happen that you really have to sure. survive. You're in the jungle then yeah it's true i mean um and i think uh, a lot of that um is just because we have these expectations that we try to design and organize in such uh you know rigid ways much like how we try to organize our quarter or our, our next quarter or you know um we'll define success or the metric of success by finite numbers definitive places that are absolute and you design your expectations to try to follow those and you know emotional expectations are curvier and they zig and zag and um it's hard to not get frustrated uh it's just human nature but i think if you allow yourself the perspective of thinking of yourself as a creator and if you know i think maybe it's one of the things that as an artist that has taught me to think of each piece that I do in relationship to the entire body of work that I'll do over my uh, over my whole life. So I don't think of exactly what I'm working on, that one canvas, that one creation, video, whatever it is, and I don't think of it as that, like, as the end-all, be-all. I'm allowed to screw up. It's allowed not to be perfect. It's allowed to be clunky. It's it has a meaning in the context of the body of work that I've done up until that point. And I don't think of it as like the, you know, the beginning and the end. Though many from the buy side, you know, um, many from, a, you know, the buy side, meaning literally your buyers, if it's in business or in, in you know, or even just people buying your ideas, right? Um, uh, they will say you're only as good as your last show, um, I think what gives you perspective is knowing that, you, you know, it's not a last show until, you know, you're, until either you, you lose your ability to perform or you're dead. 
Um, well, you know, it's so. funny because in your book, uh, you say something which I think is very different from the average entrepreneur. And it kind of, uh, it's almost like there's not, not a tension, but you're really sort of this artist entrepreneur. You say you must move from the mindset of, I am a consumer and I want X to, I am a producer and I create. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are more focused on what can I make that the consumers are going to buy. But I think you started off being more focused on, I'm an artist, what can I create? Then I'm going to sell it because I created it. And do, what, yeah, I, what, I, I, I think, I, I think that, that the, first of all, I think the entrepreneurs, like the new black, right? It's just, it's so trendy and it's so like sexy and fuzzy and, and people use it. And, and I'm not a huge fan of the word, the notion. And, and I, I don't even like how a lot of the, the culture is kind of the entrepreneurial ecosystem has organized itself. Um, it kind of fetishizes technology. Um, it, it fetishizes it in a way as if that's like the best in class, best of pedigree has to be a technology based innovation, you know, quote, capital efficient to be, you know, to really kind of wear like the, the latest in entrepreneurial thinking. Right. Um, and I think that that's a load of shit. Frankly, so you know, I I I think that that's a um, b is that the other reason I think that the word is um, not good, not because of its own fault, but because of the connotations we've assigned to it, is that it kind of organizes us, us as all motivated to just earn money, right? So there is this lust worthy for that kind of Tony Stark ar- archetype, right? We. We say like, all right, who's like the Kanye West of entrepreneurs? That would be like Elon Musk, right? Like he's the Kanye of like the entrepreneurial like scene, right? So, and Elon is, you know, we we have this, we project onto him, right? Even though like he has been so honest, he's he's been really good about talking about failure and how painful it is. But we still fetishize like, oh my God, I could, you know, make cars that fly, you know, literally with the, like, you know, rockets and, and so, or cars that, you know, operate on a battery. And I mean, that, the, I, I need not believe that, I, that he was only motivated by cash. I mean, the dude himself was like stretched pretty thin financially. And I would probably even challenge to this day is probably has not really you know, gotten that big windfall of cash, you know, a la, you know, Mark Zuckerberg style yet. Uh, and because and, what he's pursuing isn't really the money, but like the mania of creating really unique emotional experiences. I mean, at the end of the day, the you know, what you're left with after you, you know, it's not what you make, it's how you make people feel. And it's like when you walk away from the Tesla and, you know, you're miles away from it. You don't own it, nothing. But you sat in it, you smelled the leather, you drove it, you experienced, you know, charge. I mean, it makes you feel completely different about your relationship with, you know, transportation. So that's what the business he's ultimately in, right? And he, he got there and beat other guys, one of which I invested in, which is, you know, Fisker, because he he just made it, like, that, that path between... The idea and the emotional transaction of, of how he made people feel was obviously just more succinct. He just, he did it better. 
Well, I think, yeah, I now, think tactically, I, tactically, he did things maybe better. You could argue made better decisions with Panasonic and this, that. But fundamentally, he just got the spirit in a more clear way. I, I think that, uh, you know, that's a way also to describe kind of what you were doing through the, the 90s where, you know, you even say in your book, if you can't express your idea convincingly, convincingly in black and white, you know, from a Xerox machine, then essentially the idea is probably no good. Like you have to be able to communicate clearly before all the venture capital money, which is like you say, is all BS. Like you have to be able to have something that's, that's good and quality. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, too much of the, this younger kind of tech centric entrepreneurial ecosystem is so focused because the nature of how venture money works is it's like, how are you going to get me a hundred X a 200 X? They, they're kind of, they're doing themselves a disservice when they ask the community to rationalize how a business is going to be successful and make the emotional part a nice to have. They, they, they basically like, oh, that's the warm and fuzzy part. That brand part, um, how you differentiate from like, you know, a brand, like that's the nice to have. Like once we've created the evidence of revenue, we'll, we'll eventually get there. I mean, don't you remember Google? Their brand sucked, right? I mean, th- those are f-ing anomalies, all right? Those were, those are at, at times when it was the gold rush, right? There were no, there was, there was less noise in the system. The, the notion of, you know, how you're going to emote and your values and kind of your companies or your personal religion, how you're going to broadcast that are not nice to have. Okay. They are need to have. And to think that so, you're so going to, how do you do that? How do you broadcast that? Oh, I, I think you got to be tuned into what you're good at, you know, and what you're not good at. And I think that it's like a muscle. It's like, I mean, I don't know about you, but I struggle to do pull-ups. I, I'm embarrassed to do them in public, but I do attempt to do them because I know they're good for me, right? So the, the question is, is, is how do people, you know, instead of being antisocial or trying to hide behind the fact that they maybe have some kind of social idiosyncrasy uh, in how they communicate to people, they, they think that all that, like if I could just short it and create like the algorithm or this kind of product innovation all by itself, no different than like an artist saying that, you know, the flir- some kind of flourish, but then not be responsible to, you know, think about how they're going to express it in a unique way and, and kind of create that, that user liquidity um, with less friction, then they're not doing themselves a service. Like they, they can't be like, oh, I just need, I need to hire the PR guy. Or I need to hire the, the, the publicist. I need to get the marketing guy. Oh, that's the nice graphic design guy. He'll do all the, he'll get the UX all nice and sexy. Like, I'll get to that later. Right? So, like okay. Versus- so okay. So, so let's say you have something of value, something that you believe in and you're passionate about. What would be your first steps if you were starting out to kind of get the word out, to, to basically create your own personal religion if you were doing that right now? You did that for Mark Echo, but let's say someone's new starting out right now. What would you do? Well, it really depends on what product they're trying to express, right? It, it depends, you know, what product and where in the market and, and what is it, how is it differentiated? So it's kind of an overly broad question, but there are best practices that you can apply. So for instance, one, we often are so consumed with just thinking, oh, if I only had access to that big name influencer, right? 
So like there's this, the spirit of like, you know, this influencer person X in my case in the music, it was like people in the music industry when I was coming up, how do I get access to them? So you have to ask yourself, it's like, well, how do you create an emotional transaction with them? So I've done things like, you know, just sending handwritten notes and really bespoke custom packages to influencers with no zero expectations of, of hearing back from them. Right. You know, I call it swag bombs in the book. I talk about this. And, you know, for someone who's in the B2B business or a SaaS services business, at the end of the day, um, every single product, every single product has an analog human need. There's a modality there that's, that's human. So, like, it's bullshit to think, like, oh, yeah, I see how that works for fashion, but, you know, I'm in the financial services business or I have some, like, processing thing that kind of it makes my pipes faster than your pipes. Every, every product has the ability to express why it adds value from a human-to-human connection. So you need to think about that and then think about, like, oh, how do I swag bomb influencers in the market? And, you know, those influencers need not be big names, right? They, they're just people that maybe within the trade are on the supplier side of the ecosystem. So like, for instance, I didn't have money for ads, big, flashy, splashy display advertising or PR people when I first started. So what I did is I would just do as splashy as I can get in, quote, kind of the trade classified sections of the industry. Right. And I would go to people on the supplier side, the supplier side, like the under the hood parts, the guys that were the biggest truckers in the industry, the guys that maybe had the biggest screen printing facility, the guys that operated the biggest trade events. And I would market the out of myself to those B2B players and hitch my wagon to their star because that's how I built credibility. Now, I might not on the buyer side like that might not have you know, immediate, versus me just leaping right to, let me just win over the Macy's buyer. How do I win over the Bloomingdale's buyer, right? I won over guys on the supplier side so that they all, guys that were like gray hairs, been in the industry 10, 15, 20 years, said, you know, this kid, he's, I think, you give him a shot, right? And it, it created value um, in a way that was a little bit of a slower burn but it created more validity that I wasn't some fly-by-night kid that I was hell-bent to, to, to win and that I had enough intellectual awareness to win the hearts and minds of people that were in the middle of uh, the supplier side uh, and weren't necessarily consumer-facing. Let me, I mean, I, J- James, let me jump in here real fast, Mark, too, because I think you're bringing up a, a huge point. So... You know, I know a lot of people are going to listen to this interview and, uh, they're listening to, uh, two highly successful entrepreneurs and, uh, they're thinking, yeah, but these guys are just so different. And one of the things that I know that you emphasize, Mark, is taking action. And like you said earlier, take action, but without expectations. Yeah. Now, and I know you really couldn't identify what's inherently in you that made you successful, what your belief system is. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I, I'm sure you received massive amounts of criticism starting off and a lot of people saying that you couldn't do it. How were you able to block that mindset and to stay in action mode without expectations? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I'm 41. I'm, as successful goes, I'm modestly too successful, right? Uh, I've 
I've accomplished a lot. I have a pretty high batting average. You know, I mean, I don't want to brag, but I've done some things that other people in the industry with a lot more money have tried, and, and I've done it better, right? Um, despite that, I'm still always auditioning. I'm still always getting stage fright, like every day, okay? So it's a fallacy to think that just because you've earned your stripes that they aren't going to audition your ass all the time. And I think people want the comfort. They want that kind of being in that emotional bubble to not have either their feelings hurt or be embarrassed to dance off rhythm in public, right? There's this hesitation to like, oh, I'm not cool enough or confident enough to wear my sunglasses inside, right? Like, so they don't do it and they're fundamentally afraid. Or when they do do it, they do it kind of in a volume Right, and it, and not even it need even be in a loud, precocious volume, but they just don't do it in a way that expresses who the f they are and how they differentiate. They do it modestly, incrementally, right? And then they get frustrated, like why isn't someone like why isn't someone noticing? Right? Because you're not honestly, from in an intellectually honest fashion, you know, differentiating. You're not using the very things that maybe make you peculiar, that make you quiet, that make you. Um, shorter or taller or fatter or whatever it is, female, male, black, white, brown, yellow, whatever it is, you're not using those devices in a Tai Chi-like manner to define who you are rather than trying to, like, you know, uh, parrot to what you think people want to see or hear, right? So, you know, action is a scary thing, man. There's a reason they say leap of faith, Right? There's a reason they say leap of faith. Leaps? Leaps are, are scary. There's like some scary shit. There's rocks, water crashing. Right. There's alligators under. That shit's scary. They didn't say skip of faith. They didn't say, you know, step of faith. Little puddle. You lay down the jacket. You say, here you go, ma'am. You walk over. It doesn't look like that. You know, but the, the, there's something interesting, though, too, which is that you would send these, you know, swag bombs to, to everybody. It was almost like you were taking lots of multiple leaps of faith at the same time. You were you were making authentic communications from what you felt had value to other people you felt had value. And you were doing it simultaneously to maybe lots of people with no expectations back. So that's how you mitigated the risk of all of these leaps of faith. And I did it in a means which I could afford, right? It wasn't like, I, it cost me my time, my hand, my efforts. It wasn't like I was, sound, like people, they, they're like, oh, swag bomb, oh, that's expensive. It needn't be expensive, man. It just needs to be well thought out. It needs to show that you gave a F and that you were deliberate in thinking about how do I make this bespoke? How do I make this custom? show that, that I am aware of the things that matter to this person because I did enough to look them up and not just like link, LinkedIn stalk them, but like you right. really cared to figure things out. And, and you know, there's oh. a power there. Like I have to this day, there are people that I didn't necessarily ever respond to me, but years later saw me to go on to, to be successful and they acknowledged, they're like, I remember that, man. And like that, you know, so I could testify that, that, that you're the real deal. You know, I, want, I wanted to get uh, real quickly to the title of your book, Unlabel. Obviously, there's sort of the the clothing metaphor here, but what, what else does it mean to you? Because there's sort of the philosophical context as well. Oh, 
You know, I use the framework of labels because it's, it's, there's a kind of a double entendre, obviously. There's a triple, uh, but, you know, one where my brand was called Echo Unlimited, right? So I've, I've always played with the, on the notion of un. I, I like the idea of not un in like the nihilistic sense, but un in like the, the, the sense where you refuse. So like you refuse to limit yourself. I, I often say unapologetic. You know, if refuse to, you know, have a default disposition of saying sorry all the time, right? Um, especially when it comes to being self-made. Um, so the unlabel has a bunch of meanings in that regard. And then it, there's obviously, I talk about the sale of my business, which funny enough, I'm back now, um, just very serendipitously involved in the business of for the first time in like, you know, five years in, in a material way. Now is uh, operating um, uh, the, the, the business. Uh, but so there's a lot of meaning there. But really, what it means from a philosophical level to the reader, and, and, and I think would be re- important for the audience, is the notion of like, look, you are going to be assigned a label, right? Your label is your exterior packaging. It's the flourish. It's your skin. It's how I perceive you, right? And I tell people the world's going to try to organize you that way. They're going to try to package you in this taxonomy of saying you're in aisle four. Don't even dare go to aisle seven because aisle seven's where, you know, the meat is and you're, you know, you're frozen and, or you're dairy. You belong in four, right? Um, so you have to refuse to be labeled. You have to aspire to be an unlabeled. So the book, you know, uses that framework to talk about, uh, um, uh, to, you know, branding and, and personal branding and to frame it in a way that, yeah, it's a little ph- philosophical. There's no doubt. It's a little, you know, philosophical. But the reason it's philosophical is because the, 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 the reality about this stuff is that it can't be mechanical and prescriptive. Okay, that's, that's, that, 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 if you're looking for those kind of mechanical and prescriptive books, they've been written. And I don't think there's been one written in the, the landscape of branding that's really, you, you know, um, intellectually honest of how to execute. Like, because you can't just say, all right, here's the punch list, check these boxes, and boom, add water, get cake, instant brand. It doesn't work like that. So, you know, I use uh, the, the, um, a, a framework throughout the book where I say the anatomy of the brand is built on the spine of authenticity. And I use a, I model authenticity in a slightly oblique philosophical way with the purpose of saying to t- almost take the piss out of those classic, you, you know, here's the seven habits or this is the, you know, here's the art of the deal and, you know, uh, um, and kind of take the piss. Not that those books aren't purposeful and haven't governed and inspired because I think certainly they have, but I try to build a book, a business book from a more of an emotional creative place for create, for, for the creative class, the people that aren't necessarily just externally, like Dan Pink would say, externally motivated. Um, and that's what I attempted to do. And, and that's what hopefully in a long winded answer, um, the unlabeled word is attempting to mean. No, that, that's great. And it was, uh, like I said, I highly enjoyed the book. I highly recommend it to any of the audience. It was really uh, an inspiring story. Thank you, James. Like I said, it means a lot uh, to me that you say that. Yeah, and real quick, Mark, before we let you go, and again, thank you for your time very much. Um, I, 
I really discovered who you were. I knew your brand. I knew your clothes. I knew everything about that. But I really discovered who you were with the whole Barry Bonds number 756 <laughs> ball that he, um, you know, eclipsed Hank Aaron. And I voted on your website. Uh, and that was years ago, obviously. Uh, tell our listeners a little bit about this uh, process that you went through. I think you paid three quarters of a million dollars for the ball. Yeah. And then you gave um, voters the option, three different options, I believe, if I remember correctly. Yep. And I think you had like some some ridiculous amount of like 10 million visits or votes yeah, to it was, that. It was, it was almost, 11, almost 11 million votes in total. It was crazy. Um, I imagine some of that might have been bots uh, because it was just so explosive. But it was also explosive as a, as a news story. I mean, look, that was the, in the book I talk about, um, you know, the range of emotional impact. And I, I try to give, use the metaphor of distance, the distance between, you know, your end consumer, your audience, and the, 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 the feeling, the sense. And I want to do, and I've often aspired to create unique uh, emotional experiences. So here we were. You know, it was pre-TARP, right? The whole world was jacked up on some sort of performance-enhancing substance. I mean, every industry, right, our financial industries. Um, you know, I myself, from an ironic point of view, and I talk about it in the book, uh, had my own um, sort of uh, financial um, instruments that were had me jacked up with massive lines of credit that were probably somewhat make-believe in retrospect. Um, but, you know, there was this great debate and, you know, the ball was at the center of it and this is baseball and it's American pastime. People were debating all, you know, all over the place and just this window of opportunity came and I'd done things prior sort of, you know, oblique things like, you know, tagging Air Force One, um, as a means to marketing a video game. Um, you know, the president's Air Force One plane. Uh, and in this instance, I, heard that the ball was going to be on an auction and it just seemed like what a great foil um, or, or and what a kind of hot potato to take advantage of like a hard news story and at the same time try to create almost an American Idol kind of moment where people get to vote on the fate of the ball. So we put it up and we said you could either send it to the Hall of Fame as it is, unmarked, uh, acknowledging the record as, as clean and, 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 and no debate uh, on the, this performance enhancing, enhancing substances in, in baseball. B, you know, send it to the Hall of Fame with an asterisk on it where it would be laser etched on the, the, the ball um, to the Hall of Fame, uh, you know, quote, defaced, uh, permanently, you know, footnoting the ball in a literal sense. Or C, putting it on a rocket and launching it into uh, the deep, deep orbit uh, just to make it go away forever and make this silly debate, you know, something that we just don't want to talk about anymore. Um, so that was the, the concept, and we it was voted to send to the Hall of Fame with an asterisk, and that's where the ball is. And it really, it really as I say in, in the book, and I started on this with, with this note, um, it's about, it was really about, you know, how do you make people feel, for better or worse? And it was a unique device to kind of create some awareness around my name versus just people associating the brand and me explicitly to the rhino. 
And, it, you know, uh, I could have used that very same marketing dollars, 750000 Let's say it was closer to a million once you put in, you know, other types of uh, um, costs associated to actually market it and um, deploy the message. Uh, but, uh, you know, I could have used that million for display media. I could have bought billboards in Times Square. I could have done all that. And in three months, you know, no one would remember. And here we'd be years later, and I'd say, hey, do you remember I spent a million dollars on a billboard in Times Square? And you'd say, no, I don't remember. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it was just one of those perfect storms of right time, right place, right story. And, you know, the 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 ability to kind of act out on you know, what was otherwise maybe viewed as kind of a crazy idea. Well, I thought it was great. And uh, by the way, for the first time ever, my vote mattered and it counted because I said, put the asterisks on it, send it to uh, the Hall of Fame, which you did. And uh, Mark, hey, I appreciate your time so much. I know we've gone a little bit over. You're very gracious. And uh, I hope our audience got a lot out of it. We'll certainly put a link to your book for all of our audience. We, We will advise them to pick it up. And you've given some great wisdom here. Well, we, we really appreciate the opportunity. I certainly appreciate this opportunity, and um, thank you for having me. Hopefully the audience got something out of it, and I'm sorry if I came off. Uh, uh, I wasn't yelling. I'm just emphatic. Yeah, you're, no, pa- you're no, passionate. It's great. It's great. Yeah, so, cheers. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mark. All right, take Be care. Well. Bye. Peace. James, uh, thank you for bringing Mark on. I, I personally got a lot of valuable information out of it. Yeah, it's huge. He's a, I'm a big fan of his, so this, it was it was great to have him on the show. And he really understates his story to a degree that shows a lot of uh, humility or, or being extremely humble because he, um, you know, this guy came from nothing and he's worth a ton of money. He says he's moderately successful. Forget that, man. This guy is unbelievably successful. He literally created an entire niche for himself out of nowhere in a hip hop community, much like uh, the Beastie Boys did. You know, that's that's it's a white Jewish kid earning mega respect in a very, you know, hardcore urban environment. And he created a clothing line for him that's still to this day a great brand. It's very impressive. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's funny how many, you know, we, we, it sort of seems funny, like a white Jewish guy getting this business, but you have, you know, Mark Echo, you have Steve Rifkin, who started Loud Records, which, which, um, basically developed the Wu-Tang Clan. You have, uh, Dave Mays, uh, you know, Harvard educated white Jewish guy who started the Source magazine, which was the biggest hip hop magazine out there at the time. And it's, it's funny how, you know, those cultures mixed. Yeah, it is definitely funny. It's not something that people would really think about, but they mix very well. Uh, all right, James, before we get out of here, let's talk about you, uh, your silent retreat that you were just on. Claudia loves to put these things to you, and I'm, I'm so impressed that you are able to make it through these. It, it makes me want to challenge myself and try it out sometime. And you always have a great autoresponder that you put up for your email. Uh, what was the purpose of this last one? What did you personally learn, and what have you accomplished by doing that? Well, you know, um, I've written 11 books, but I've never written a book with someone. So now Claudia and I are writing a book together. So Claudia is my wife. We're writing a book together, and it's called The Power of No. And it's about how important it is to basically say no 
to the things that are trying to trap you. So whether it's, you know, we talked a little bit about this in the market echo interview just now, you know, the things that try to label you or the things that try to put some sort of peer pressure on you or some sort of cultural pressure on you, or even, you know, just on an individual basis, like, oh, you always have to treat your family this way and your friends this way. There's all these rules about government, school, friendships, family that we're supposed to follow. But how do you actually say no so that you personally are free and happy because the only way everyone around you is going to be free and happy is if it starts with you and you surrounding yourself with people like yourself. So uh, we went on this retreat because uh, for one thing, it's always nice to get away from all the business calls and so on. And the other thing, we were writing probably five to 10,000 words a day on this book while we were there. So it's, it wasn't just about like kind of meditation and taking walks in the trees and stuff. We were hardcore, you know, writing this book. We probably wrote 60,000 words in 10 days. And, uh, it's going to be exciting when the book comes out. Yeah, that's very impressive. That's, uh, that's fantastic. I, I, should shut the world off sometimes and do that because I know I'll accomplish a lot more because I get in these uh, OCD loops. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where it's like, it, uh, check your cell phone, check your email. Uh, you know, you're you're like I'm like a robot, a slave to technology sometimes, and I hate it. Me too. Like you wake up at three in the morning and like, okay, I gotta go to the bathroom and check my emails because like some because you think you're you're deluded or I'm deluded right. into thinking somewhere at like two thirty in the morning someone has sent me the most Oprah has sent me an email right and and President Obama has sent me an email that I have to reply to quickly. So, but when you're on one of these retreats, you get really disconnected bit by bit. You know, every day a little bit more disconnected until your mind is finally free to be itself, so that you can get work done. And it's a real pleasure. Well, listen, James, it's great. Thank you so much for bringing Mark on. Thank you for sitting in for Porter. You always do an excellent job. And Thanks. as always, we encourage our audience to pick up Choose Yourself. If they haven't already, I know that we've had a lot of our audience has, and uh, we've received a ton of feedback. And a lot of times um, you're making an impact in their lives in little ways that hopefully can compound itself to provide that kind of inner confidence that Mark Echo talked about and you talk about and can propel people to uh, not really rely on the government or their their employers or anyone else because, uh, like you talk about all the time, you can't count on anybody but yourself. So, uh, right, look, at, look at like what Mark even said, too, like how he would personally created something of value that was inexpensive and that he himself built up the authentic communications not with different companies or brands, but with the people that inhabit those companies. Because ultimately, any institution is made up of people with their own worries, their own desires, their own needs. And it's those authentic communications that not only build a career, but build your life. And that's what's important to connect to. Well, James, thank you so much. Uh, I know we'll talk to you okay. soon. And I look forward to uh, catching up in New York. Stansberry Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized financial advice for any individual specific situation. Each individual's financial situation is unique and Stansberry Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized advice. Stansberry Radio is not licensed to render personalized advice and should be considered simply the public opinions of Stansberry Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific financial securities are not intended to address any listener's particular financial situation. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.